The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. I want to mention a great resource for writers, and this month's sponsor, Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. I'll expound later in the show, but the short version is this long-awaited book about the craft of creative writing from New York Times bestselling author Steve Almond sets out to debunk the well-meaning but misguided myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and most honest work. Pick up a copy today of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, wherever you buy books, more soon. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash thewriterfiles. Help us start something special. Rainmaker FM. Greetings and welcome to a special edition of The Writer Files. I'm your host, Kelton Reed, returning from an extended summer hiatus. My old friend, award-winning international journalist, author, pundit, bad penny, Adam Skolnick, turned up this week to discuss with me a piece I wrote recently for Copyblogger titled Five Things Only Serious Writers Do. But before Adam and I get into it, I wanted to explain why I've been away from the microphone for so long. It's a heartbreaking story, and if you're not into tragedies, feel free to fast forward to the good stuff. In fact, you could even skip to part two. I apologize for the weight of this, but it seemed only right to share the story here for curious listeners. A tremendous thank you is in order for those of you throughout the many communities who have reached out with your support, love, and thoughts for my family over the last few months. There are never enough words. Adam Skolnick's narrative nonfiction book, One Breath, based on his award-winning New York Times sports reporting, is available now in paperback. In addition to his recent journalism, Adam has visited 45 countries, contributed to over 30 Lonely Planet guidebooks, and has written for ESPN.com, Men's Health, Outside, BBC, Playboy, The New York Times, and has appeared on NPR. In this part of the file, Adam and I discuss why the show's been on hiatus for so long how human beings crowdsource grief and loss in times of tragedy and the limits of empathy, Adam's recent globetrotting journalism, including his piece on the Thai soccer team rescue, pretty cool story, and what it's like to be a hired ghost writer. Stay tuned. The Writer Files is brought to you by my friends at copyblogger.com. Words that work. Build your online authority with powerfully effective content marketing. Get superior content marketing education so you can build a remarkable online presence. Authors, bloggers, journalists, online publishers, and entrepreneurs, head over to copyblogger.com to learn more. That's copyblogger.com. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published and leave us a rating or a review over on Apple Podcasts to help other writers find us and we are rolling once again welcome back finally to the writer files adam skolnick man it's good to be here (laughs) i am 
your host, Kelton Reed. Obviously, this is a special edition of the show that uh, we traditionally call writer porn. And I am here with award-winning international journalist, author, correspondent, Adam Skolnick, uh, who is returning to talk about a piece that I did for copyblogger.com recently titled Five Things Only Serious Writers Do. If you feel like following along, you can find that at www.copyblogger.com slash serious hyphen writers. Do you say hyphen or do you say dash? Um, it depends if I'm talking to a serious writer. In that case, <laughs> I'll say hyphen. Yes, of course you would. And if I'm talking to anyone in the Trump administration, I'll say dash. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we're going to get into what Adam's been up to. I always love catching up with him because he is a globetrotting madman poet. Um, also a ghost writer, which some of you may not know about. And he's going to tell us a little bit about that. But, mm. or, or he may not. He may not. No, because ghosts that. don't speak. They just <laughs> spook. Did you did you write that ahead of the I I that oh it was that that's in my <laughs> iPhone notes. <laughs> my go to my go to app. You need to turn your I, I have this really innovative way of taking notes. I use the most generic app that comes with the phone. <laughs> I put my notes there. It's it's really innovative. You know, uh, I, I do have to tell you, and um, I have not been a fan of the notes app in the past, but since uh, recent updates, I think to the, with the iOS and, and uh, Apple software or hardware or whatever the fuck operating systems, um, the notes app now syncs across all the devices. So that's finally helpful. Yeah, and also yeah. I find it interesting that like every app like incorporates what every other app does. So it's it's kind of like uh, the travel space now. You can go to any major city and see like the same shops and restaurants and brands, right. and now you can go into any main smartphone, and every Notes app has the same features. It's very bizarre. It's like we're living in two different kind of homogenized worlds, and so. It's kind of it's kind of weird it's kind of weird what's happening yeah it is a little bit weird no it's not a little bit weird it's very weird it's very reality reality you mean yeah uh reality is is, is seemingly folding in on itself in every dimension and, and level of life it is it's very very weird it's all you know it's yeah. all it's all coming to a, a uh a head in virtual reality where we'll exist for the rest of our lives and <laughs> As we, <laughs> as we destroy our planet. All right, dear listeners, yeah. <laughs> stay with us for more, more notes from the sixth extinction. Ah, the Anthropocene. How do you say Anthropocene? Anthropocene? I, I say Anthropocene. Anthropocene. All right, we'll go with that. Or Anthropocene. Because it's uh, like anthropomorphic yeah. anthropology, Anthropocene. Yeah, I hope that uh, we are actually living in a, a virtual reality world because uh, uh, you know things are things are definitely have been strained out there and and, and politics and and elsewhere. So you're saying you hope this is all an illusion and yeah. we're really just living yeah. as adult fetuses in the Matrix system? Sure. Yeah. Elon <laughs> Musk. You're, you're uh, hoping for that. You're hoping that that's the truth. <laughs> yeah. I'm praying for that. Um, you're hoping this is all not really happening. <laughs> yeah. Part, part of me is uh, definitely on the Elon Musk uh, 
uh, he wrote, uh, he wrote something about, or, you know, he was quoted recently saying that he believed, uh, that we were living in a, in a, uh, projection or some kind of a, uh, virtual reality world. Jeez. He's, I mean, he's, he's really going in so many different directions at once. <laughs> I mean, that guy is, uh, I can't keep up with that guy's thought forms. Yeah. Well, you've written about him, um, but that's not why we're here. Yeah. I wrote loosely about him. I wrote about Hyperloop, which right, is his, right. his, his brain baby. Earlier in the show, I mentioned an invaluable resource for writers. Truth is the arrow, mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories based on three decades of writing, failing, and trying again. Author Steve Allman is a beloved professor at Harvard and Wesleyan and the acclaimed New York Times bestseller of 12 books of fiction and nonfiction, and in Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, Steve employs the radical empathy he displayed as a co-host of the Dear Sugars podcast with Cheryl Strayed, where they explored the joys and trials of storytelling to explode myths that hold us back from writing our deepest and truest work. The book includes chapters on plot, character, and chronology, but travels far beyond the earnest intentions of most craft books. It also includes writing prompts to generate new work. Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo called it one of the best books on writing he's ever read, and also the funniest. Pick up a copy of Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories wherever you buy books and add it to your TBR today. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. You can catch up with Adam over at adamskolnick.com. Uh, he posts most of his recent uh, journalism over there. Catch him, uh, Adam Skolnick, on uh, Instagram. I'll post links to all of these places. And we're going to catch up with Adam and, and talk about some recent journalism pieces he's been doing, uh, working on, and uh, his recent travels. Before that, I, I did want to take just a brief time out. And I think having Adam on the show was important because he's an old friend and, and I can kind of talk openly with him about why the show has been... Uh, on hiatus for a few months um, since May, really, and uh, why I've just been publishing reruns or the greatest hits, if you will, and uh, what the future holds. But it's a little bit hard for me to talk about because it's been a, it's been a, uh, it's been a hard road here uh, for the Reed family. But uh, the short story is that after a healthy thirty-seven week pregnancy and and my wife and I are expecting to have a uh, healthy baby girl in uh, early May and after all you know all signs pointed to um, a healthy a healthy baby um, we gave birth to a baby girl May uh, 8th and uh, she was healthy weight and length but um, 
uh, really having trouble uh, getting air, breathing. And it was uh, it was a shock because uh, we get we did a home birth, which is which is uh, our second, and um, everything was going smoothly up to the point where she was born. I actually caught my my, uh, my daughter, and uh, when she was born, and put her on my my wife's chest, and and she was just really not able to catch breath. So yeah, yeah. Um, so um, so you caught your your daughter. And so you were obviously that's a moment of exhilaration and joy. And how how long was that? Did that last before you realized you had some trouble? It was almost immediate because uh, she wasn't able to get air. Of course, the midwives that uh, we had for our second, uh, both for our first and our second birth, are extremely professional. The room slowly starts to look like a hospital room, and of course they have uh, oxygen and and you know all the things that they need. And of course they have uh, emergency services on speed dial. So. Um, when she wasn't really able to get any air into those little lungs, she was, uh, you know, the, the, the paramedics were called, the fire department showed up first and, and, uh, you know, was very, they were very professional and very careful to kind of observe what was going on to make sure that she was going to be all right. And, um, all signs pointed that she was going to be okay or start to breathe on her own, um, as babies do when they first come out. Because they're not used to breathing, of course, and so you're just waiting for them to kind of figure it out. But the uh, paramedics and the midwives agreed that she needed to be uh, taken to the uh, emergency room immediately. So, you know, it's like a matter of seconds when they kind of agree that um, doesn't it doesn't look like she's doing it on her own. So, of course, you know they've got her connected to a respirator or a breathing apparatus and um, they're doing all they can to help her and so we uh, whisked her off to the emergency room which uh, was not a very not a very far drive from from our place and uh, I, ch- I chased that ambulance like a madman while my wife uh, and uh, uh, second midwife stayed behind and um, Arrived in the uh, the fantastic uh, hospital, Denver Health, here in Denver. Um, they have an incredibly professional. Uh, it's, a, it's a training teaching hospital, so there's a lot of different staff, and it's it's truly impressive to see what they do there. They were uh, incredibly, incredibly gracious, and and it's a little bit hard for me to to relive it now. But um, of course, they they were doing all they could once she once our daughter arrived. Uh, and how is how is your wife doing? She had her own complications, right? That's exactly right. So I didn't know this at the time, um, but I was trying to text her an update that they were having trouble intubating uh, our daughter because um, she she was having so much trouble breathing, and they were trying to figure out what was going on. They were, you know, doing all they could to get some answers, but there weren't any answers. And of and course, intubating means uh, getting air into her lungs. Yeah, artificially. Um, exactly. Yeah, um, with a uh, with a breathing machine of some kind, so they could stabilize her. And uh, of course, they did, and she was uh, whisked off. I mean, it was just a. T- it was. It was frankly disturbing to see so many uh doctors and nurses working so hard to help her it's just just kind of a shock after everything you've been through of course you've been up all night um yeah 
going through labor, which was a pretty short labor. It was about a 12 hour labor, at least short <laughs> from our perspective. Um, but of course I'm sleepless, I'm exasperated and I'm, I'm worried, sick. And I'm trying to communicate with my wife who at that time, if you're familiar with how <laughs> live birth uh, works, was uh, then obviously expected to deliver the placenta, which is the is the second phase there. Once they've cut the cord, the uh, mom delivers the placenta. And uh, what happened was she had a rare placental uh, retention, which is very danger mm. dangerous for the mother because mm -hmm. uh, what happens is she ends up um, bleeding quite a bit. So she was also whisked off to the hospital, uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, in, a, in an ambulance as well, um, arrived at the ER, was taken immediately to labor and delivery wing. Um, same hospital? Same hospital, yeah. They want to keep the mom and the baby close to one another. And uh, uh, lost a lot of blood, actually, almost two-thirds of her blood by that point. Um, wow. So required uh, an emergency transfusion. So by that point, I was um, going back and forth between the NICU, which is the neonatal ICU there, uh, intensive care unit for, for newborn babies, and uh, kind of wearing a hole in the, in the uh, tiles there between the, the NICU and the... Um, labor and delivery wing where I'd been told my wife was, but she was in the OR having this procedure to have her placenta removed and uh, needed a blood transfusion. So as I'm walking up to the uh, receptionist at, at the labor delivery um, and they're telling me this information, some uh, young man races by with a, uh, a code, I guess it's a code white or something. Mm -hmm. uh, r races by with her blood transfusion in a, in like a cooler, <laughs> which is, oh my just goodness. Yeah. It's a little distressing. And of course I can't see two thirds her. of her blood. I mean, that's yeah. like towards the limit of what someone can tolerate. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't mean to dig into these, um, uh, details are probably not, not appropriate here, but anyway, um, it was a harrowing experience, uh, yeah. because I didn't know, I had no answers. I didn't know what was happening with my wife. She was in the operating room. Um, my daughter was in the NICU and I still didn't have any answers from those neonatologists as they were trying to figure out, uh, why she wasn't breathing. But, um, long story short, after a couple, uh, tense nights in the hospital, my wife made it through. Okay. Uh, and went into recovery there. And, um, my daughter, after a couple days of, of nail biting was diagnosed with, uh, a pretty uh, serious uh, and very rare uh, kidney disease called ARPKD, which is a uh, auto autosomal recessive polycystic kidney disease, and she had a pretty serious, pretty pretty serious uh, diagnosis. And uh, so, uh, after some tears and and obviously many many visits to the NICU. Um, and uh the support of our loving family my daughter got to to hold her sister but four days and four hours after she was born um she passed and it was uh, a pretty heartbreaking moment for my family obviously a tragic uh, turn of events uh, that just kind of turned your world upside down so that's why i haven't been uh, podcasting <laughs>
to say yes. to say the least. I haven't been doing a lot well, of stuff. Thanks for sharing all of that with with me and with your listeners. I mean, I think it's helpful, man. You know, like we 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 don't know who we're moving around with in this world. Like we we walk by random people on the street. We see them sitting on benches. We're um, driving in traffic and and kind of isolated in our bubbles. And, you know, so many people are carrying heavy experiences like this. And, yeah. uh, you know, to, to be able to share that with people and give them an insight into the hardest moments of your life, I think, can be empowering for other people when they're dealing with challenging circumstances. Because it shows that, first of all, we're not alone in this world. And even if we're not talking about the pain or even having to communicate it on a daily basis, it's not like that is a thing we can all do on a daily basis every time we meet somebody or sit down at a meeting or like right. hang out with a friend we're not going to like divulge our innermost thoughts all the time although you know i'm sure some people do that it's not like <laughs> feasible for most people emotionally sure. or otherwise so to be able to tune in to you and for you to be able to tell them what's been going on i mean it takes a lot of courage and it's super helpful i don't think you quite realize the permission you're giving people to just be okay with their wounds and i think that's like the key to being able to push through and to endure through them is being able to verbalize them and in a way that is clear-headed and real and i think it's really super helpful it's helpful to me as your as your friend lifelong friend and it's helpful to your family, I'm sure, and certainly to your listeners. So it's really cool that you did that. And I, I'm honored that uh, I'm here to kind of bear witness to it. Thank you so much. I know, you know, the, uh, the show's not, not really about me. I don't, I don't typically delve into personal stuff and, and, you know, it's been obviously a pretty traumatic experience for me and my family. And, you know, there aren't enough thanks really not enough words to express the gratitude I have to the communities that supported us over the last few months. Um, all the families that reached out to us, uh, I want to say the families that, uh, donated, uh, just, uh, an enormous amount of goodwill thoughts, um, food, money, I mean, all the things that's been truly amazing. Yeah, I mean, because- I, I know you don't want to get too deep into it, but like one thing we're not going to talk about too much, but you know, you had a firsthand, you know, although the doctors and all the medical professionals at the hospital were amazing, you you also kind of got confronted with the bureaucracy of the way the health system works in America yeah. in a way that was eye-opening and not, and kind of a gut punch on top of all this and, and um, having to, you know, it's working out, it's going to work out in your favor, but just to even be having to deal with that on top of all this, um, you know, uh, you got a firsthand account of that. <laughs> yeah. You don't, you don't, you, and you can't really know what these families go through when something t- t- uh, terrible, tragic, um, a death or otherwise happens, especially, you know, just from the, a financial standpoint, because, uh, you don't know until you go through it, what, um, those challenges are and, um, you know, kind of how the American health healthcare system works, uh, or doesn't work, but yeah, this isn't about my, <laughs> my, uh, no, but I mean, I just think it's another part of this, you know, it's sure. like, it's like, yeah, it just adds to it to have to deal with that stress on top of everything else. It's yeah. like, it's ridiculous. You know, I, one thing I wanted to express is that, um, we're all going to be brokenhearted at some point. That's just the way life is. You know, and I don't yeah. think anyone gets out without having that. And, um, 
nobody wants it. It's never fun. And it's almost always extremely difficult, but especially in this sense, I mean, it could get much more difficult. Jesus. But like when your heart is broken, in many ways, I find you see the connections between yourself and other people and this world more clearly. It's almost like the light gets in and you can see like the strands of light connecting all of us and all things. And uh, I think like people who are like, super stable and stoked and in love are almost (laughs) the most immune to the reality of of interconnectivity and it's only when we're in these moments of pain and and where we really see it the most i think you experienced that you were just talking about that so it's um it's so it's so the human condition it's just like i'm always it's a big mystery man i don't know Mm -hmm. if i'm expressing it right but like no uh, these moments yeah they're, they, There's so much power. They open your eyes and especially kind of that veil of life and death, you know, or welcoming a child into the world or, or losing a, a beloved uh, parent or, or, you know, mentor, you know, life ultimately is tragedy. And, and uh, suffice it to say, I'd love to do, you know, an episode on uh, the neuroscience of tragedy and why, you know, tra- tragedy is something that we uh, relish in a kind of a storytelling capacity of course i've kind of leaned into or leaned back towards you know kind of uh trying to understand the nature of life and death from a, a spiritual perspective but you know i won't get mm-hmm. into that um because you know you kind of see it firsthand and you're right it does open your eyes to a lot of stuff and then there's that raw nerve um and i think so much great art comes has come from that um hopefully um you know, people don't have to experience a tragedy like I've experienced. But another interesting point um, is that, you know, you, you mentioned kind of the, the empathy piece or, you know, how we don't always relate to things we don't know about people. Um, it's amazing. And again, I want to say uh, one final thank you to all the communities that uh, have reached out and supported us with their love and thoughts and, and gifts. But uh, so many families will uh, reach out with their own stories of loss, um, mm. in a time like this, um, which is really eye-opening because, because you learn things about friends or, or family or, or even people, even strangers mm. that want to reach out and say to you, they've been through something similar or they they know someone who's been through something similar and this helped them or, uh, mm. here's, a, here's a resource that, uh, someone they know, you know, and it's, you, you, you see that, that interconnected web of, of, you know, how important we all are to each other, um, <laughs> you know, how we kind of crowdsource and grief and mourning and, and, and how similar we all are, yeah, how like yeah. at the base level, we're all the same. And it's like, um, yeah. and that's why the empathy, I mean, you know, the, uh, uh, something, if we want to get into it, uh, one of the stories I'm working on is all about kind of empathy and our limits of empathy and, um, yeah. And it's uh, yeah. Let's talk. Let's talk about that. Let's go. Let's turn. Let's turn the uh, spotlight on. Same ideas. Well, no, not to (laughs) insert, but but um, that fact that we, I think, one of the biggest problems we have right now is this: is this how everyone is kind of polarized, right? Obviously, we all know that, and um, we know there's reasons that we're polarized in this country, anyway. And it's not just this country; it's all over the world. There's there are nations that are experiencing some level of this polarization, and 
some of it is the way we're getting our news and the information we're consuming, but all of it can be completely eviscerated if we choose empathy. And uh, I think that's what I was getting at with the moments of tragedy is yeah. that you're forced into empathy because people bring it to you and then you, you automatically are open to it as well um, in those moments. It's just the way, I think, the way things work when you're dealing with loss. And uh, yeah, so I mean, I think we have extreme limits to empathy, I think, in, in the way the American system works in the health care and in the, in the justice realms, there are a lot of limits to empathy. And um, people can intellectualize why and come up with reasons why, um, but it is, I think, one of the biggest hurdles we have as a human society, and it's why we keep coming up against these walls um, and having issues come up that uh, pit one against the other, when in reality we're all in it together. I like that. Well, um, let's talk about some of your more recent projects. I've been uh, obviously following uh, along and um, curious about your travels. Uh, I found fascinating this piece, um, I think, that you did for, was it Outside? Um, yes on how the divers found the Thai soccer team. So it was kind of a part of the story that hadn't been told. And you, with your background yeah. experience with um, you know, all these great divers and, and kind of the, uh, dug into the, you know, the technical piece of how they actually got these, uh, this junior soccer team out of that crazy situation. I think we were all kind of following along with that and, and praying that they would be safe and they, and they were saved, but you, you got to tell the story of how that actually happened from a technical standpoint. It was pretty fascinating. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's a great example of where we were all, everyone was like tapped into the empathy for these parents and these kids who, who wandered in there. So the story, basically what happened is I was watching it like everybody else, you know, I mean, I, I, I know Thailand very well. I've reported from Thailand for a number of publications, outside included, and I've done some Lonely Planet travel guides to Thailand, uh, several of them. So I know Thailand well, I know the dive world well. So what happened was I was like everybody else kind of tapped in and, and riveted, but I wasn't there. So um, I never really had any illusions that I could uh, report on it. You know, I had some people kind of messaging, you should go out there, you should, you know, but there was um, hundreds of international media there. And I kind of veer towards the underreported stories. So yeah, for me, when there's hundreds of media at a place, it's, you know, nobody really needs me there because they have it. But, you know, I was wrong in this case. And an editor of mine at Outside reached out and said, hey, do you do you have any contacts in the dive world that knows what's happening from a diver? He, he was the first one, uh, Jonah Ogles is his name. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, he was the first to kind of see there was this underreported element of this very well reported story. Sure. Um, because of the hundreds of people that were from the member from media, international media that were outside the cave. I mean, next to none of them have any experience with, uh, technical scuba diving and tech diving. So I, right. I happen to have experience with that and know people <laughs> who are some of the best in the world. So it's crazy because uh, I think we were all yeah. just, we all just had our fingers crossed, like, Oh, let's just hope those divers can figure out how to get those kids out of there. But there wasn't really any details about, you know, the plan or, you know, if there were, they were just no. kind of pretty, pretty, uh, well, I mean, the New York times did a really over. great job. I thought the New York times did a great job with the maps and everything like that, but even they 
um, if you don't understand the world of tech diving, you're not going to ask the questions. All you care about is the map. Where you know where are you going? Where, where's the yeah. beginning of it? Where's the end of it? How are you getting the kids out? How are you getting to the kids? But never the discovery of of how to get there. So yeah, um, that's a harrowing so story. Happy. Harrowing story. But yeah, I mean it's crazy. It's it's so and also I think part of that is that when we hear Navy SEALs are involved, we just kind of assume they got that. <laughs> that they got it because they're so well-trained and so, um, so on it and, and they deserve that reputation, um, to a large degree, but they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily the best divers, right? The best divers are these, uh, exploration cave divers and tech, tech divers. Um, their, their skill set is by far uh, superior to most Navy SEALs. And it's only because they're simply doing it every day. So what, what happened was, you know, there, there are Navy SEALs, uh, Thai Navy SEALs and American Navy SEALs that do do deep underwater exploration. But most of the diving that they do is in the top 20 feet, 20, uh, you mm -hmm. know, first 10 meters of the water, because that's where they're doing their work. You know, that's where they're preparing de uh, depth charges or emerging onto beaches in the dead of night to do their thing. They're not necessarily doing the deep underwater stuff they're doing great navigation but not necessarily the deep stuff so and, and certainly not cave diving and so what happened was my editor reached out to me and said do you know anybody who's involved and so i reached out to a few people including leah barrett who's a collaborator of mine from the past that i think we've talked about she's a mm -hmm. great underwater photographer and she connected me with uh ben Raymond, he lives in uh, Thailand. He's a Belgian diver who lives in Phuket and is just happens to be one of the best cave divers in the world. He's the guy that world record breaking tech divers go to when they want to learn to cave dive. So he's top of the heap. That's cool. And he, what happened in his case was he was called, I don't want to tell the story verbatim, but he, he, he is, he uh, was called by somebody who used to be a Navy SEAL and still consults with the SEALs and is a cave diving buddy of his and was one of the first volunteers on the scene after yeah. the kids went missing. And he basically said, you know what? Um, we were close to getting, we were, you know, we thought we were making progress, but, uh, but we got pushed way back and we're going to need you up here. Can you come up here? And Ben was about after a long season of teaching, diving himself was about to take a vacation to the Philippines with his wife right. and literally had to repack his bags and go get, went up the next day. And so this story is about, uh, Ben and some of his mates and how they were able to find the the T-junction within the cave system yeah. that enabled them to find the kids. Uh, what Amazing. happened was they got pushed back, um, you know, over a mile back because of a secondary flood that came in after the kids were already trapped. Right. And so all the progress that the SEALs had made, um, they lost, and then they didn't know how to get to where they were. Uh, and so it took Ben uh figuring that out and he was able to figure out only by almost getting trapped himself and getting That's lost right. in the cave so it's yeah. a it's a crazy story and it was it was hard from a technical perspective for me you know it what that required was uh several nights working uh late on skype to contact ben in asia um and then some other people to confirm what he was telling me and it also required me not being there it's it's i've done a lot of desk reporting stories so it's not like i haven't done desk reported stories but there's an intimidation factor when you're doing desk reported stories on something that has been reported so well by so many media outlets it's like god you know you kind of the, the doubt pops in. Am, am I getting this right? I mean, right. You, you just, you just don't know. Um, it just so happens nobody had been talking to Ben and, Amazing. um, you know, people it's, it, so nobody had, nobody had talked to him about this. And so I just kind of got lucky 
in a way, but then was also able to understand and, and, and um, communicate what Ben was telling me in a way that readers could grasp. Nice, nice. Well, I'll point uh, listeners to that link in the show notes. Uh, it's over there at uh, outsideonline.com. How divers found the Thai soccer team. That's a pretty amazing story. Um, check it out. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. And uh, what else have you been working on? I know uh, you have a couple different pieces in the pipeline on top of your other yeah. work. Um, I'm excited to be collaborating with Long Reads. So Long Reads is a new outlet for me, and uh, they do really excellent long-form reporting um, kind of in that New Yorker vein. So they'll just yeah. drop into some world and, and, and go deep into it. They have incredible research editing team and editorial team to get everything right. They're reasonably well-funded, I think. So, uh, you know, the, the rates are, are, uh, fair rates for, for journalism, even though it's a digital only, um, site. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's been great being able to work with these thoughtful, this thoughtful team on a couple of stories. Uh, one is coming out at the end of August. It's about uh, filmmaker Chris Weitz, who you will know from American Pie and About a Boy and Rogue One fame. Yeah. And, and his film that he has made called Operation Finale about the hunt, uh, Israel's hunt for Adolf Eichmann in Argentina in 1960. Wow. And... And I just happened to be in Buenos Aires. I was in Argentina for Lonely Planet. Just I ended up meeting Chris uh, and his wife in a bar in Palermo uh, neighborhood. But, but, like just bumping into them, like no, uh, it wasn't off, quite that no. way. But they, they're connected <laughs> to people I know. Okay. So it was, but I didn't know Chris would be there. So basically, his wife Mercedes Martinez is close friends with a, a good friend of mine, and. Um, and so he said, hey, Mercedes is – my friend, great friend Mercedes is in Buenos Aires with – you know, it's all social media. Like I took a photo of like the view from my hotel room or something. And, <laughs> and uh, Winter messaged me, said, hey, my friend Mercedes is in Buenos Aires with her husband. You guys should totally meet up. And I said, oh, that's cool. You know, I was – I was, uh, my wife wasn't with me. So I contacted Mercedes and she said, yeah, we'll meet you for a drink. And it turns – she brings along Chris, but I still didn't know who Chris was. You know, he was so unassuming and so that, you know, he didn't even talk about himself. And so finally at some point we're like, so you guys are here. What are you doing? And uh, Chris mentioned he was working on a movie. And I said, oh, wow. You know, I'm like – I still didn't know who he was. He didn't say, I'm Chris White. It was just Chris. So then I kind of got home and started Googling around, got back to the room, started Googling around and realized I've been loving this guy's movies for That's 20 years. That's and wild. I just met him. And so, you know, because it's not just from a filmmaking standpoint, but I mean, 
certainly and then he's one of the best screenwriters of his generation so you know yeah. i mean american pie is a classic about a boy's classic he got an oscar <laughs> nomination for that so it's a real thrill um and then uh, i just thought i want to i want to write about this so that's coming out in long reads at the end of the month it's it's really interesting because what happened what was happening in 1960 in europe and um in argentina echoes what's happening right now in terms mm -hmm. of this there was this um, rebirth of radical right thought and authoritarian kind of nationalistic thought um, germany was not uh, had not gotten into reconciliation truth and reconciliation their education system had not re been revamped yet talking about all the harm that they had done as you know when it was nazi germany there was no acceptance of that it was almost all denial hmm. and so um what happened was by catching Eichmann, they were able to put him on trial, um, televised all over the world and actually present evidence. And so there was this huge bubbling up of Holocaust denial that was going on in 1960, um, not just in Germany, but all over the world. Mm -hmm. And um, and so, you know, putting him on trial kind of uh, vaporized all of that, changed the entire approach of Germany to the way they handled the Holocaust going forward and, and how they educated their population on it. And it really did a lot of good. So we, we I draw some parallels to what's happening today. Yes. Does, when does that come out? Is that is it already published? Or? August 29th. August okay. 29th. August 29th. Same day the movie comes out. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Interesting story, man. Yeah. Chris Weitz is a um, definitely a talented, talented writer, producer, and uh, uh, director. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, and then the last thing is there's something coming out also in long reads is about is kind of a true crime mashup that, that becomes a deep dive into prison reform and, the yeah. prison, and, and that's in Washington state. So it starts out with, um, an attempted murder case in Tacoma and, uh, a friend of the, uh, accused ends up following her into the rabbit hole of women's prisons and becomes this accidental kind of prison reforms advocate prison reform advocate uh never intended to do that um and, and got and and got into it and kind of that uh, took over her life so it's that story yeah yeah and you've talked about that one before is that one uh published is it out there not yet not no yet. okay so, and that's going through uh the fact checking process now it's all almost done and then we'll uh that's a that's a bear it's like a nine thousand worder. <laughs> yeah, no, I um, I'm I'm like in the middle of it, but I'm fascinated by the by the story um, of Karen Lofgren. That should come out uh, either the end of this month or beginning of next. And then once these come out, um, after a month or two, they'll be on my website. Yep, head over to adamskolnick.com. You can always find uh, his latest stuff, and I do encourage you to check out his uh, Instagram too, which is photo tour of the world. Where mm. uh, where's Adam Skolnick? this week yeah it's just at my desk like always now <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you're you are um you've taken on some uh ghostwriting i understand it's which is a, a kind of a new uh a new thing for you can you uh, ghostwriting yeah. yeah can you say anything about it um well, i can say this about it <laughs> uh, i've been lucky enough to uh be paired up with some really interesting people with phenomenal stories and so for me, it's nice. You know, one thing when you get into freelancing, you can become so consumed with just trying to make things happen and find your own stories and get yourself out there that it becomes kind of, it's not narcissistic in a sense, but in a sense it is because you're always focused on me, me, me. So to be able to use kind of the skills and help facilitate other people's dreams, I think is something that I've really enjoyed. Also, it's just the nature of reality, to be honest, it's just a reality check of the industry. You know, it's, it, when you're an independent journalist, it's hard to keep the lights on. I've been doing that with a, with 
with a mix of Lonely Planet and um, kind of magazine newspaper reporting and, uh, you know, getting my own book out there helped a lot. Uh, but, you know, the Lonely Planet grind kind of worked on me to the point where I just it wasn't sustainable. I couldn't just keep doing one after another after another. It wasn't getting me ahead financially and it was just a drain. So to uh, to get into this, it's it's uh, the ghostwriting end of things is just another thing I can do to keep the lights on and keep telling stories that come to me as well. So it's mm. it's it's a nice pairing. You know, I think we're always trying to uh, as independent journalists uh, oh, and, and, and writers or artists always trying to piece together how the financial pie will work. Sure. And this is a great way to do it. In a, you know, at the same time, it's not just a financial end for me. Um, you know, I've been lucky enough with these projects to be writing about stuff that still um, I care about. So uh, it's, it's a nice mix. Yeah, yeah. You always hear about uh, passionate um, directors, you know, who kind of get ripped into the Hollywood system saying... I'll do I'll do one for them and then I'll do one for me. Um, yeah. But uh yeah, we all we all struggle with finding ways to keep the to, lights on. Right. I brought that up to Chris Whites and he goes, Yeah, I don't really want to do any for them. They're all for me. <laughs> <laughs> but he can do that. I mean, he's kind of at that at that he's a uh, made man. level. He's a serious writer. Oh yeah. Do you want to talk yeah. about uh serious writers? Let's talk about serious You're writers. kind of a serious writer. You're kind of a big deal. Am I overly serious? Because I feel like I feel like, I feel like I try to keep it light, but yeah, I know it's weird. I think I'm funnier than my work. Yeah. Well, we have to find we have to find humor in our idiosyncrasies. Thanks so much for joining us. We will return next week to discuss all five things only serious writers do in part two. I promise. And if you enjoy The Writer Files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published. And please leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts to help other writers find us. For more episodes or just to leave a comment or a question, you can always drop by writerfiles.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>